0: Well, I assume by now everyone knows that Vince couldn't be here in person today as he and his family are struggling with COVID. And our hearts and our prayers are with them as they take care of each other. But it's always special for me to serve our congregation in this way. It's a privilege to present God's message as best I can. And my hope is that God's spirit will use my poor efforts to speak to you through Holy Scripture. On a positive note, one of the great things our church is doing is reading through the Bible in a year. Thank you, Vince. Kathy and I have been going through the daily readings together, and we take turns reading the passage out loud and often mispronouncing many of those names. It's a different experience from most devotional reading. Usually the scripture of the day is brief, and the guide jumps around the Bible. But this Bible project plan has us reading through the entire book of Genesis right now, chapter by chapter, and it lets you see the generational connections Uh, in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After the daily reading, Kathy and I will talk about connections to other things we've been studying in the Bible, and it's really been a blessing to do this together as husband and wife. And for those of you who are participating in that plan through 2022, yesterday's scripture included Psalm 22. This is one of my favorite psalms, and is the scripture for today's message. My hope is this message will encourage you to read that passage again later today along with Psalm 23, which is today's passage. I'd like to spend a brief moment in prayer, each person in his own heart and her own heart, asking the Lord to speak in a new and fresh way through this old, old story of the cross, this prophetic passage in the Psalms. Let us pray. Father, I would ask that you would use my words today as I share my thoughts on this passage and letting the Holy Spirit expand them to a fuller understanding of the significance of Calvary, perhaps in a way we've not really seen in the past. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive your message. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, David will be our teacher, but not just David. David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David, writing centuries before the cross, and yet he sees the event as clearly as Matthew Mark Luke and John each human author writing through the marvelous inspiration of the holy spirit revealing to us the mind of god who prophetically sees down through the centuries to the inevitable future of his own plan for salvation and in this psalm david is giving us insight to the cross and many of its details and i want to share with you two chapter or excuse me two categories a revelation that came to David. Two elements of the redemptive work of Christ displayed in this Psalm. First, the gracious sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in Psalm 22. And second, the good shepherd in Jesus in Psalm 23. Let's start with Psalm 22, the gracious sacrifice. In this passage, we come face to face with the suffering servant of Isaiah. Face to face with the sacrificial lamb. We have in this psalm a detailed, explicit account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Almost a thousand years before Christ, David sees this remarkable scene. Psalm 22 is quoted seven times in the New Testament, and each time it's quoted, it's used in conjunction with Christ on the cross. Although David was describing a crucifixion, he had no reference to draw upon. Crucifixion did not exist for another 400 years. And yet it's so explicit that we feel like we were there on that day when Jesus died, gathered around the cross with the crowd on Good Friday. Now the psalm has two main parts. The first 21 verses are a prayer. The rest of the psalm is praise. Let's start with the prayer, verses 1 to 21. And the scene is Messiah on the cross. And if you have uh, your Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, you might want to uh, look at the verses with me as I go through them. Yes, this is an event recorded from David's life. And yes, there was a time in David's life when he was in distress and cried out to God. And this was a very real thing to David. But it goes far beyond David. This is not only David pouring out his heart over the events in his life. This is prophecy fulfilled in Calvary. This is a messianic psalm describing the passion of Christ. Like other passages in the Bible, it has a double fulfillment. In a sense, its limited fulfillment was related to what was happening with David at the time he wrote it, but its greater fulfillment is yet to come, referring to Christ, and I want to focus on that aspect today. On slide three, we see the Messiah on the cross, and he is praying, and his prayer is a cry of anguish. It is a deep petition coming from the innermost part of his being. We see the cry of separation. Expressed in the first five verses. Remember that on Good Friday, there was three hours of supernatural darkness from noon to 3 p.m. And Jesus, in that darkness, that loneliness, that separation, he felt the silence of God. A silence he had never known in all eternity. Verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? He's feeling the emptiness of that separation. Perhaps the groaning could have reference to his prayer and agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as he anticipated the, sin of bearing, or the, anticipated the sin bearing of the cross. But whether it is the outburst in the garden or the inward groaning as he hung suspended between earth and sky, it's born out of a sense of separation. Now I want to make something clear. This is not a lapse of faith. This is not a broken confidence. This is a cry of disorientation, if you will. Because Jesus Christ was so used to God's familiar and protective presence. He was so used to the fact that the Father was always there. And now the Father's presence on the cross is withdrawn. And in the disorientation of that moment, he cries out. He feels the enemy closing in. As he bears all the sins of all his people... ...throughout all history. Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry day... ...I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. In the turmoil of his passion... ...he knew that God heard him... ...heard him as if he were shouting... ...at the top of his voice. And that inward groaning reached God... ...when it was daytime. And it reached God when that supernatural darkness... ...came across in the middle of the day. God was aware of the groanings... ...of the heart of Christ... But there was no lapse in faith, just a sense of disorientation. Because it had never been like this, nor would it ever be again. But to show you that his faith was constant in verses 3 through 5, he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. Jesus deals with his anguish and his disorientation by reaffirming two things, God's character and God's history, God's attributes and God's actions in the past. These two elements remove any disorientation or any anxiety over which we don't have an immediate answer. Yet you are holy, it says in the psalm, which affirms, God, I understand why you are far from me, For for at this moment I bear sin, and it is part of your plan. And he acknowledges the holy character of God, the God who is faithful, who makes covenants, who keeps covenants. And then he reaffirms the actions of God, where our fathers trusted and you delivered. He has never forsaken his people. He has confidence that the Father will not forsake his Son. And so we find throughout the Bible, and I hope you also find in your own lives, as you face trials, When a son or a daughter of God is confronted with a situation which seems to have no resolution, remind yourself who God is, his nature, his character, his attributes, and what he has done, not only in biblical stories, but even in your own life, the way he has touched your life and blessed your life in days past. Like Jesus, we can use those same two ways to give us confidence when we have disorientation, when we face suffering or difficulty in our life, who God is, ...and what he has done. He is affirming in his mind that God has not abandoned him permanently. Christ didn't flounder in his grief. He held on to the solid rock of the divine character. The affirmation of God strengthened him even in the moment of separation. He was forsaken, but he did not lose confidence in the character of God. But there was a second cause for his cry. Not only separation, but scorn. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That's amazing language for the Son of God. A worm and not a man. Think of the the difference there. Less than human. Despised. He was a worm. If we read in Isaiah, in the prophetic um, chapters of 52 and 53, it says, His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. And Isaiah 53 says he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Before the cross they had beaten him and crippled his body. They had crushed a crown of thorns into his face and slapped him and plucked his beard. This left his face probably a a mass of blood. And he was not a pretty sight. He was despised and rejected. There was scorn. Verse 7. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. And so his cry to the Father came from that scorn that he bore also in the cross. The humiliation. In Matthew 27, it records the real Calvary event. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. So it wasn't just the separation from which he cried to the Father it was the scorn as well. The form of scorn we see in verse eight in Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. The crowd mocking Jesus say, he trusts so much in the Lord, let the Lord get him out of this mess. Amazing that both those passages are so similar and so aptly predict and show what Christ was going through at that moment. These unbelievers who were mocking him had a false premise Their premise is that God is there for our convenience. And they thought if he really knew God, he'd snap his fingers, and God, like some utilitarian genie, would come down and meet his needs. You can see that in the verse of Psalm 22 is exactly what's recorded in Matthew. It's what the people said, recorded both there and in the Gospels, predicted a thousand years before any of those people were born. There was a third reason that Jesus cried out. Not only is separation and a scorn, but thirdly, I believe the solitude of being there alone. Verses 9 to 11 in Psalm 22. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Jesus is referring, or David is referring to his birth, by which he entered the human world and became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, God, you brought me into this. You made me. It was you that prepared this body for me. And now during this trial, you have left me alone. The whole thing was your plan. And I had all my hope in you, and now I'm all alone. Not only God, but his disciples had fled him. In Matthew 26, it says "Then all the disciples left him and fled. Prophets had predicted this. There's a passage in the Old Testament, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And now he was alone. No disciples to come to his aid. Those same disciples whose aid he had come to many times. So he cries out not only in separation and in scorn, but of solitude. And there's a fourth cause for his cry. In verse 12 and 13, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. Now, not only could this refer to the crowd and the Roman soldiers, but I think there's a spiritual element to it as well. In the Canaanite religion, they had this area where they raised these bulls of Bashan. And these bulls were strong, and they were allowed to range. They were like free-range, grass-fed cattle way before the, it all became popular. And these bulls became very big and very strong because they could eat freely. And the Canaanite religion felt that these, these bulls actually had like a demonic element, like they were uh, possessed. And so in, in that passage there, um, there could be an element of spiritual persecution of Christ on the cross, that the demons were actually watching. In the verses it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. How did David know about piercing since he had not seen a crucifixion? Verse 17, I may count all my bones, they look and stare upon me. During the crucifixion, to take a breath, you would have to push up on the nail in your heels, and it would force your back against the raw wood and put pressure on all your joints. After six hours of doing this, just to take a breath, Jesus could feel every bone in his body aching for rest. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's exactly what the Roman soldiers did. They didn't know this prophecy, but they did fulfill it. Then they gambled for his cloak. In fact, in the Old Testament, the law was that you could not take any man's cloak, because that was his blanket and his bed, and it was just too cruel. A man's outer cloak was the most important possession that he had, and when a person died, the common thing was to take that outer cloak and give it to his mother, or give it to his brother, or give it to someone in the family. But the soldiers were indifferent to all this. They were in control, and they were indifferent to his mother or his family. And in their selfish greed, all they could do was gamble to see who won the coat. Now, you've got to be a pretty callous person to sit there gambling over a cloak of someone who's dying on a cross. And have nothing better to do but to pass the time by gambling. All of these elements in this psalm are fulfilled in that cry to the Father. And the prayer comes to a climax in verses 19 through 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so as prayer comes to a climax. He affirms that God has heard. The Father's silence must have been broken at that point. And the prayer ends in verse 21. You have rescued me. Now we come to the, the praise goes from, chapter, from verse 22 on to the rest of the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. All of this pain and then immediately all of this praise. Something must have happened between verses 21 and 22. I think that was the resurrection. Because where did he go after the resurrection? Immediately to see his brothers in the upper room. He was alive. He was with his disciples. And he praised God. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The resurrection has taken place and is the reunion in the upper room. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. We are included in the offspring. If you fear the Lord, if you are saved by the blood of Christ, the church was redeemed by the death and the resurrection. And so you have 21 verses of cries from the cross. You have the resurrection. And then it turns to praise in the remaining part of the psalm. And it turns into redemption for Christ's sacrifice to all those who come in meekness and eat and are satisfied as an offspring that serves him. And so David shows us this gracious sacrifice, the obedience of Jesus bearing our sins on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may need to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 22 describes the sacrifice that established the eternal covenant by the death and blood of Jesus, now the great shepherd of the sheep. In Psalm 23, you have his priestly work. In the first verse, David acknowledges the Lord is my shepherd. Why? Because he lays down his life for his sheep. He's alive and he's our great shepherd, and he cares for us as our advocate, and he bought us through his blood. I shall not want. Why? Why? because he intercedes, because he bears my needs, because he carries my cares. He meets all my physical needs. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Then he talks about a spiritual renewal in verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He talks about solace in verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Look closely at that phrase. You are with me. Our Lord has experienced loneliness, emptiness, and separation from God on the cross. He knows what that feels like. Feeling abandoned. But our good shepherd is always with us, not forsaking us. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we have been, but without sin. Jesus is not only God, but he has a human nature. And it worked to give him a sense of compassion for living on this earth and going through the things we as people do. He worked. He was tired. He was hungry. He experienced all the human weaknesses. So he has a great amount of empathy for what we go through. And then verse 5 talks about security. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. He cares for us in abundance. My cup runneth over. He sets things right. A good shepherd who watches his sheep, cares for his sheep, supplies us with physical needs, spiritual renewal, solace, and security. In verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We can dwell in God's house forever. It is because of the sacrifice, the resurrection, and now the priestly work of Christ as our shepherd interceding for us. He goes and prepares a place for us in the house of the Lord where we can dwell forever. So the lamb of Psalm 22 becomes the shepherd of Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 closes with an introduction of the eternal kingdom. I dwell in his house forever. We've gone from his sacrificial work to his intercessory work in our salvation. We find everything in these two psalms. There's a big difference between the first verse and 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in the end, in chapter 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a progression between those two points. Back to back in the Psalms. In closing, let me say this. In one glimpse through the heart and mind of David, you have seen the fullness of the majesty of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, from the cross to our shepherd, to our Lord in the eternal kingdom. All I can think of is the hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a tremendous Savior savior, to do such a tremendous work, and what a blessing to be counted among God's people. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us these truths through your word. Help us to understand what it is you're teaching us. To give us perspective each day. To think on Jesus' sacrifice and that he is our shepherd. Help us to understand it and take it to heart and inform the way that we walk. To look for your wisdom and security when we are in turmoil. The peace of knowing your character and relying on your care. God, we know that you want legitimacy in our faith and depth in our walk and to grow in the grace and knowledge of your word. We want our faith to be real and deep. Help us to hold fast to the gift of salvation bought at so great a cost and look to the eternal kingdom when the world is uncertain, where we will dwell forever. Amen.